Book One, Chapter Seven of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book One, Chapter Seven. The following morning, about noon, Rose, who had been coaxed and persuaded by Catherine, much against her will, into taking a singing class at the school, closed the school door behind her with a sigh of relief and tripped up the road to Burwood. How abominably they sang this morning! she said to herself with curving lip. Talk of the natural north country gift for music! What ridiculous fiction people set up! Dear me, what clouds! Perhaps we shan't get our walk to Shamwar after all, and if we don't, and if— Her cheek flushed with a sudden excitement. If Mr. Ellesmere doesn't propose, Mrs. Thornburg would be unimaginable. It is all Agnes and I can do to keep her in bounds as it is, and if something doesn't come off to-day, she'll be for reversing the usual proceeding and asking Catherine her intentions, which would ruin everything. Then, raising her head, she swept her eyes round the sky. The wind was freshening, the clouds were coming up fast from the westward. Over the summit of High Fell and the crags on either side, a grey, straight-edged curtain was already lowering. "'It will hold up yet a while,' she thought, "'and if it rains later we can get a carriage at Shamwar and come back by the road.' and she walked on homeward meditating, her thin fingers clasped before her, the wind blowing her skirts, the blue ribbons on her hat, the little gold curls on her temples, in a pretty many-coloured turmoil about her. When she got to Burwood, she shut herself into the room which was peculiarly hers, the room which had been a stable. Now it was full of artistic odds and ends, her fiddle, of course, and piles of music, her violin-stand, a few deal-tables and cane-chairs, beautified by a number of chiffons, bits of liberty-stuffs with the edges still ragged, or cheap morsels of Syrian embroidery. On the table stood photographs of musicians and friends, the spoils of her visits to Manchester, and of two visits to London which gleamed like golden points in the girl's memory. The plaster balls were covered with an odd medley. Here was a round mirror, of which Rose was enormously proud. She had a distractive from a farmhouse of the neighbourhood, and paid for it with her own money. There, a group of unfinished headlong sketches of the most fiercely impressionist description, the work and the gift of a knot of Manchester artists, who had fated and flattered the beautiful little Westmoreland girl, when she was staying among them, to her heart's content. Manchester, almost alone among our great towns of the present day, has not only a musical but a pictorial life of its own. Its young artists dub themselves a school, study in Paris, and when they come home scout the academy in its methods, and pined to set up a rival art centre, skilled in all the methods of the salon in the murky north. Rosie's uncle, originally a clerk in a warehouse, and a rough diamond enough, had more or less moved with the times, like his brother Richard. At any rate, he had grown rich, had married a decent wife, and was glad enough to, to befriend his dead brother's children, who wanted nothing of him, and did their uncle a credit, of which he was sensible, by their good manners and good looks. Music was the only point at which he touched the culture of the times, like so many businessmen, but it pleased him also to pose as a patron of local art, so that when Rose went to stay with her childless uncle and aunt, she found long-haired artists and fiery musicians about the place who excited and encouraged her musical gift, who sketched her while she played, and talked to the pretty, clever, unformed creature of London and Paris and Italy, and set her pining for that golden vie de bohème which she alone of all artists was destined never to know. For she was an artist, she would be an artist, let Catherine say what she would. She came back from Manchester restless, for she knew not what, thirsty for the joys and emotions of art, 
determined to be free, reckless, passionate, with Wagner and Brahms in her young blood, and found Burwood waiting for her. Burwood, the lonely house in the lonely valley, of which Catherine was the presiding genius. Catherine! For Rose, what a multitude of associations clustered round the name! To her it meant everything at this moment against which her soul rebelled. The most scrupulous order, the most rigid self-repression, the most determined sacrificing of this warm, kind world, with all its indefensible delights, to a cold other world with its torturing, inadmissible claims. Even in the midst of her stolen joys at magisterial London, this mere name, the mere mental image of Catherine moving through life, wrapped in a religious peace and certainty, as austere as they were beautiful, and asking of all about her the same absolute surrender to an awful master she gave so easily herself, was enough to chill the wayward rose, and fill her with a kind of restless despair. And at home, as the vicar said, the two sisters were always on the verge of conflict. Rose had enough of her father in her to suffer in resisting, but resist she must by the law of her nature. Now, as she threw off her walking things, she fell first upon her violin, and rushed through a Brahms Liebeslied, her eyes dancing, her whole light form thrilling with the joy of it. And then with a sudden revulsion she stopped playing, and threw herself down listlessly by the open window. Close by, against the wall, was a little looking-glass, by which she often arranged her ruffled locks. She glanced at it now. It showed her a brilliant face enough, but drooping lips, and eyes darkened with the extravagant melancholy of eighteen. "'It's come to a pretty pass,' she said to herself, "'that I should be able to think of nothing but schemes for getting Catherine married and out of my way. Considering what she is and what I am, and how she's slave for us all her life, I seem to have descended pretty low. Hey-ho!' And with a portentous sigh she dropped her chin on her hand. She was half-acting, acting to herself. Life was not really quite unbearable, and she knew it, but it relieved her to overdo it. "'I wonder how much chance there is,' she mused presently. "'Mr. Ellsbell will soon be ridiculous. Why, I saw him gather up those violets she threw away yesterday on Moorcrag. And as for her, I don't believe she's realised the situation a bit. At least, if she has, she is unlike other mortals in this as in everything else. But when she does—' She frowned and meditated, but got no light on the problem. Chatty jumped up on the window-sill with her usual stealthy aplomb, and rubbed herself against the girl's face. "'Oh, Chatty!' cried Rose, throwing her arms round the cat. "'If Catherine would only marry Mr. Ellesmere, my dear, and be happy ever afterwards, and set me free to leave my own life a bit, I'll be so good you won't know me, Chatty. And you shall have a new collar, my beauty, and cream till you die of it.' And springing up, she dragged in the cat, and, snatching a starlet anemone from a bunch on the table, stood opposite Chatty, who stood slowly waving her magnificent tail from side to side, and glaring as though it were not at all to her taste to be hustled and bustled in this way. "'Now, Chatty, listen. Will she?' A leaf of the flower dropped on Chatty's nose. "'Won't she? Will she? Won't she? Will—' "'Tarsome flower! Why did nature give it such a beggarly few petals? If I'd had a daisy, it would have all come right.' "'Come, Chatty, waltz, and let's forget this wicked world.' And, snatching up her violin, the girl broke into a Strauss waltz, dancing to it the while, her cotton skirts flying, her pretty feet twinkling, till her eyes glowed and her cheeks blazed with a double intoxication, the intoxication of music and the intoxication of sound, the cat, meanwhile, following her with little mincing, perplexed steps, as though not knowing what to make of her. 
"'Rose, you madcap!' cried Agnes, opening the door. "'Not at all, my dear,' said Rose calmly, stopping to take breath. "'Excellent practice and uncommonly difficult. Try if you can do it and see.' The weather held up in a grey, grudging sort of way, and Mrs. Thornburg especially was all for braving the clouds and going on with the expedition. It was galling to her that she herself would have to be driven to Shammore behind the fat vicarage pony, while the others would be climbing the fells, and all sorts of exciting things might be happening. Still, it was infinitely better to be half in it than not in it at all, and she started by the side of the vicarage man in a most delicious flutter. The skies might fall any day now. Ellesmere had not confided in her, though she was unable to count the openings she had given him thereto. For one of the frankest of men he had kept his secret, so far as words went, with a remarkable tenacity. Probably the neighbourhood of Mrs. Thornburg was enough to make the veriest chattelbox secretive. But notwithstanding, no one possessing the clue could live in the same house with him these June days, without seeing that the whole man was absorbed, transformed, and that the crisis might be reached at any moment. Even the vicar was eager and watchful, and playing up to his wife in fine style, and if this situation had so worked on the vicar, Mrs. Thornburg's state is easier imagined than described. The walk to Shammore need not be chronicled. The party kept together. Robert fancied sometimes that there was a certain note of purpose in the way in which Catherine clung to the vicar. If so, it did not disquiet him. Never had she been kinder, more gentle. Nay, as the walk went on, a lovely gaiety broke through her tranquil manner, as though she, like the others, had caught exhilaration from the sharpened breeze and the towering mountains, restored to all their grandeur by the storm-clouds. And yet she had started in some inward trouble. She promised to join this walk to Shammore, she promised to go with the others on a picnic the following day, but her conscience was pricking her. Twice this last fortnight had she been forced to give up a night-school she held in a little lonely hamlet among the fells, because even she had been too tired to walk there and back after a day of physical exertion. Were not the world and the flesh encroaching? She had been conscious of a strange inner restlessness as they all stood waiting in the road for the vicar and Ellesmere. Agnes had thought her looking depressed and pale, and even dreamt for a moment of suggesting to her to stay at home. And then, ten minutes after they had started, it had all gone, her depression, blown away by the winds, or charmed away by a happy voice, a manly presence, a keen, responsive eye. Ellesmere, indeed, was gaiety itself. He kept up an incessant war with Rose. He had a number of little jokes going on at the vicar's expense, which kept that good man in a half-protesting chuckle most of the way. He cleared every gate that presented itself in first-rate Oxford form, and climbed every point of rock with a cat-like agility that set the girls scoffing at the pretense of invalidism under which he had foisted himself on Windale. "'How fine all this black purple is!' he cried, as they topped the ridge and the Shamore Valley lay before them, bounded on the other side by line after line of mountains, Wetherlam and the Pikes and Fairfield in the far distance, piled sombrely under a sombre sky. "'I've grown quite tired of the sun. He'd done his best to make you commonplace.' "'Tired of the sun in Westmoreland?' said Catherine, with a little mocking wonder. "'How wanton! How prodigal!' "'Does it deserve a nemesis?' he said, laughing. "'Drowning from now till I depart? "'No matter. I can bear a second deluge with an even mind. "'On this enchanted soil all things are welcome.' She looked up, smiling at his vehemence, taking it all as a tribute to the country, or to his own recovered health. 
he stood leaning on his stick, gazing, however, not at the view, but at her. The others stood a little way off, laughing and chattering. As their eyes met, a strange new pulse leapt up in Catherine. "'The wind is very boisterous here,' she said, with a shiver. "'I think we ought to be going on.' And she hurried up to the others, nor did she leave their shelter till they were in sight of the little Shamwell Inn, where they were to have tea. The pony-carriage was already standing in front of the inn, and Mrs. Thornburg's grey curls shaking at the window. "'William!' she shouted. "'Bring them in. Tea is just ready, and Mr. Ruskin was here last week, and there are ever so many new names in the visitor's book.' While the girls went in, Elsmer stood looking a moment at the inn, the bridge, and the village. It was a characteristic Westmoreland scene. The low, whitewashed inn, with its newly painted signboard, was to his right, the pony at the door lazily flicking off the flies and dropping its greedy nose in search of the grains of corn among the cobbles. To his left, a grey stone bridge over a broad, light-filled river. Beyond, a little huddled village backed by, and apparently built out of, the great slate quarry which represented the only industry of the neighbourhood, and a tiny, towered church, the scene on the Sabbath of Mr. Mayhew's ministrations. Beyond the village, shoulders of purple fell, and behind the inn, masses of broken crag rising at the very head of the valley into a fine pike, along whose jagged edges the rain-clouds were trailing. There was a little lurid stormlight on the river, but in general the colour was all dark and rich, the white inn gleaming on a green and purple background. He took it all into his heart, covetously, greedily, trying to fix it there for ever. Presently he was called in by the vicar, and found a tempting tea spread in a light upper room, where Agnes and Rose were already making fun of the chromolithographs and rummaging the visitor's book. The scrambling, chattering meal passed like a flash. At the beginning of it, Mrs. Thornburg's small grey eyes had travelled restlessly from face to face, as though to say, "'What? No news yet? Nothing happened?' As for Ellesmere, though it seemed to him at the time one of the brightest moments of existence, he remembered little afterwards but the scene, the peculiar clean mustiness of the room only just opened for the summer season, a print of the Princess of Wales on the wall opposite him, a stuffed fox over the mantelpiece, Rose's golden head and heavy amber necklace, and the figure at the vicar's right, in a gown of a little dark blue check, the broad hat shading the white brow and luminous eyes. When tea was over they lounged out on the bridge. There was to be no long lingering, however. The clouds were deepening, the rain could not be far off. But if they started soon they could probably reach home before it came down. Ellesmere and Rose hung over the greystone parapet, mottled with the green and gold of innumerable mosses, and looked down through a fringe of English maidenhair growing along the coping into the clear eddies of the stream. Suddenly he raised himself on one elbow, and, shading his eyes, looked to where the vicar and Catherine were standing in front of the inn, touched for an instant by a beam of fitful light slipping between two great rain-clouds. "'How well that hat and dress become your sister,' he said, the words breaking, as it were, from his lips. "'Do you think Catherine pretty?' said Rose, with an excellent pretence of innocence, detaching a little pebble and flinging it harmlessly at a water-wagtail balancing on a stone below. He flushed. "'Pretty? You might as well apply the word to your mountains, to the exquisite river, to that great purple peak.' "'Yes,' thought Rose, "'she's not unlike that high, cold peak.' But her girlish sympathy had conquered her. It was very exciting, and she liked Ellesmere. She turned back to him, her face overspread with a quite irrepressible smile. 
he reddened still more. Then they stared into each other's eyes, and without a word more understood each other perfectly. Rose held out her hand to him with a little brusque bon camarade gesture. He pressed it warmly in his. "'That was nice of you,' he cried. "'Very nice of you. Friends, then?' She nodded, and drew her hand away just as Agnes and the vicar disturbed them. Meanwhile, Catherine was standing by the side of the pony carriage, watching Mrs. Thornburg's preparations. "'You're sure you don't mind driving home alone?' she said in a troubled voice. "'Mayn't I go with you?' "'My dear, certainly not, as if I wasn't accustomed to going about alone at my time of life. No, no, my dear, you go and have your walk. You'll get home before the rain.' "'Ready, James?' The old vicarage factopen could not imagine what made his charge so anxious to be off. She actually took the whip out of his hand and gave a flick to the pony, who swerved and started off in a way which would have made his mistress clamorously nervous under any other circumstances. Catherine stood looking after her. "'Now then, right about face and quick march!' exclaimed the vicar. "'We've got to race that cloud over the pike. It'll be with us in no time.' Off they started, and were soon climbing the slippery green slopes, or crushing through the fern of the fell they had descended earlier in the afternoon. Catherine, for some little way, walked last of the party, the vicar in front of her. Then Ellesmere picked a stone-crop, quarrelled over its precise name with Rose, and waited for Catherine, who had a very close and familiar knowledge of the botany of the district. "'You have crushed me,' he said, laughing, as he put the flower carefully into his pocket-book. "'But it is worth while to be crushed by anyone who can give so much ground for their knowledge.' "'How oh, you do know your mountains, from their peasants to their plants!' "'I have had more than ten able-bodied years living and scrambling among them,' she said, smiling. "'Do you keep up all your visits and teaching in the winter?' "'Oh, no, not so much, of course, but people must be helped and taught in the winter. And our winter is often not as hard as yours down south.' "'Do you go on with that night-school in Polgill, for instance?' he said with another note in his voice. Catherine looked at him and coloured. "'Rose has been telling tales,' she said. "'I wish she would leave my proceedings alone. "'Paul Gill is the family bone of contention at present. "'Yes, I go on with it. "'I always take a lantern when the night is dark, "'and I know every inch of the ground. "'And Bob is always with me, aren't you, Bob?' And she stooped down to pat the collie beside her. Bob looked up at her, blinking with a proudly confidential air, as though to remind her that there were a good many such secrets between them. "'I like to fancy you with your lantern in the dark,' he cried, the hidden emotion piercing through. "'The night wind blowing about you, the black mountains to right and left of you, some little stream perhaps running beside you for company, your dog guarding you, and all good angels going with you.' She flushed still more deeply. The impetuous words affected her strangely. "'Don't fancy it at all,' she said, laughing. "'It is a very small and very natural incident of one's life here.' "'Look back, Mr. Ellesmere. The rain has beaten us.' He looked back, and saw the great pike over Shanmore village blotted out in a moving deluge of rain. The quarry opposite on the mountainside gleamed green and vivid against the ink-black fell. Some clothes hanging out in the field below the church flapped wildly hither and thither in the sudden gale, the only spot of white in the prevailing blackness. Children, with their petticoats over their heads, ran homewards along the road the walking party had just quitted. The stream beneath, spreading broadly through the fields, shivered and wrinkled under the blast. Up it came, and the rain mists with it. In another minute the storm was beating in their faces. "'Caught!' cried Ellesmere, in a voice almost of jubilation. "'Let me help you into your cloak, Miss Laban.' 
he flung it round her and struggled into his own Mackintosh. The vicar in front of them turned and waved his hand to them in laughing despair, then hurried after the others, evidently with the view of performing for them the same office Ellesmere had just performed for Catherine. Robert and his companion struggled on for a while in a breathless silence against the deluge, which seemed to beat on them from all sides. He walked behind her, sheltering her by his tall form and his big umbrella as much as he could. His pulses were all aglow with the joy of the storm. It seemed to him that he rejoiced with the thirsty grass over which the rain-streams were running, that his heart filled with the shrunken becks as the flood leapt along them. Let the elements thunder and rave as they pleased. Could he, not at a word, bring the light of that face, those eyes, upon him? Was she not his for a moment in the rain and the solitude, and she had never been in the commonplace sunshine of their valley life? Suddenly he heard an exclamation and saw her run on in front of him. What was the matter? Then he noticed for the first time that Rose, far ahead, was still walking in her cotton dress. The little scatterbrain had, of course, forgotten her cloak. But monstrous! There was Catherine stripping off her own, Rose refusing it. In vain. The sister's determined arms put it round her. Rose is enwrapped, buttoned up before she knows where she is, and Catherine falls back, pursued by some shaft from Rose, more sarcastic than grateful, to judge by the tone of it. "'Miss Labour, what have you been doing?' "'Rose has forgotten her cloak,' she said briefly. "'She has a very thin dress on, and she is the only one of us that takes cold easily.' "'You must take my Mackintosh,' he said at once. She laughed in his face. "'As if I should do anything of the sort.' "'You must,' he said, quietly stripping it off. "'Do you think that you are always to be allowed to go through the world, taking thought of other people, and allowing no one to take thought for you?' He held it out to her. "'No, no, this is absurd, Mr. Ellesmere. You are not strong yet, and I have often told you that nothing hurts me.' He hung it deliberately over his arm. "'Very well, then. There it stays.' And they hurried on again, she biting her lip and on the point of laughter. "'Mr. Ellesmere, be sensible,' she said presently, her look changing to one of real distress. "'I should never forgive myself if you got a chill after your illness,' he said in the most matter-of-fact tone. "'Men's coats are made to keep out weather.' and he pointed to his own, closely buttoned up. "'Your dress—I can't help being disrespectful under the circumstances—will be wet through in ten minutes.' Another silence. Then he overtook her. "'Please, Miss Leyburn,' he said, stopping her. There was an instant's mute contest between them. The rain splashed on the umbrellas. She could not help it. She broke down into the merriest, most musical laugh of a child that can hardly stop itself, and he joined. "'Mr. Ellesmere, you are ridiculous!' But she submitted. He put the Mackintosh round her, thinking, bold man, as she turned her rosy, rain-dewed face to him, of Wordsworth's Louisa, and the poet's cry of longing. And yet he was not so bold, either. Even at this moment of exhilaration he was conscious of a bar that checked and arrested. Something—what was it?—drew invisible lines of defence about her. A sort of divine fear of her mingled with his rising passion. Let him not risk too much too soon. They walked on briskly, and were soon on the Windale side of the pass. To the left of them the great hollow of High Fell unfolded, storm-beaten and dark, the river issuing from the heart of it like an angry voice. "'What a change!' he said, coming up with her as the path widened. "'How impossible that it should have been only yesterday afternoon I was lounging up here in the heat, by the pool where the stream rises, watching the white butterflies on the turf and reading Laodamia. "'Laodamia,' she said, half sighing as she caught the name. 
"'Is it one of those you like best?' "'Yes,' he said, bending forward that he might see her in spite of the umbrella. "'How superb it is, the role, the majesty of it, the severe chastened beauty of the main feeling, the individual lines!' And he quoted line after line, lingering over the cadences. "'It was my father's favourite of all,' she said, in the low, vibrating voice of memory. He said the last verse to me the day before he died. Robert recalled it. Yet tears to human suffering are due, and mortal hopes defeated and o'erthrown are mourned by man, and not by man alone, as fondly we believe. Poor Richard Laban! Yet where hath the defeat lain? Was he happy in his school life? he asked gently. Was teaching what he liked? Oh, yes, only... Catherine paused, and then added hurriedly, as though drawn on in spite of herself by the grace sympathy of his look, "'I never knew anybody so good who thought himself of so little account. He always believed that he had missed everything, wasted everything, and that anybody else would have made infinitely more out of his life. He was always blaming, scourging himself. And all the time he was the noblest, purest, most devoted—' She stopped. Her voice had passed beyond her control. Elsmere was startled by the feeling she showed. Evidently he had touched one of the few sore places in this pure heart. It was as though her memory of her father had in it elements of almost intolerable pathos, as though the child's brooding love and loyalty were in perpetual protest, even now, after this lapse of years, against the verdict which an overscrupulous, despondent soul had pronounced upon itself. Did she feel that he had gone uncomforted out of life, even by her, even by religion? Was that the sting? "'Oh, I can understand,' he said reverently. "'I can understand. I've come across it once or twice, that fierce self-judgment of the good. It is the most stirring and humbling thing in life.' Then his voice dropped. "'And after the last conflict, the last quailing breath, the last onslaughts of doubt or fear, think of the vision waiting, the eternal comfort.' O oh, my only light, it cannot be that I am he on whom thy tempests fell all night. The words fell from the softened voice like noble music. There was a pause. Then Catherine raised her eyes to his. They swam in tears, and yet the unspoken thanks in them were radiance itself. It seemed to him as though she came closer to him like a child to an elder who was soothed and satisfied an inward smart. They walked on in silence. They were just nearing the swollen river which roared below them. On the opposite bank two umbrellas were vanishing through the field-gate into the road, but the vicar had turned and was watching for them. They could see his becloaked figure leaning on his stick through the light wreaths of mist that floated above the tumbling stream. The abnormally heavy rain had ceased, but the clouds seemed to be dragging along the very floor of the valley. The stepping-stones came into sight. He leaped on the first and held out his hand to her. When they started, she would have refused his help with scorn. Now, after a moment's hesitation, she yielded, and he felt her dear weight on him as he guided her carefully from stone to stone. In reality it is both difficult and risky to be helped over stepping-stones. You are much better managed for yourself, and halfway through Catherine had a mind to tell him so. But the words died on her lips, which smiled instead. Could have wished that passage from stone to stone could have lasted for ever. She was wrapped up grotesquely in his mackintosh, her hat was all bedraggled, her gloves dripped in his, and in spite of all this he could have vowed that anything so lovely as that delicately cut 
gravely smiling face swaying above the rushing brown water was never seen in Westmoreland Wilds before. "'It is clearing,' he cried with ready optimism as they reached the bank. "'We shall get our picnic to Melrose after all. We must get it. Promise me it shall be fine, and you will be there.' The vicar was only fifty yards away, waiting for them against the field gate. But Robert held her eagerly, imperiously, and it seemed to her her head was still dizzy with the water. "'Promise,' he repeated, his voice dropping. She could not stop to think of the absurdity of promising for Westmoreland weather. She could only say faintly, Yes, and so release her hand. You are pretty wet, said the vicar, looking from one to the other with a curiosity which Robert's quiet sense divined at once was directed to something else than the mere condition of their garments. But Catherine noticed nothing. She walked on, wrestling blindly with she knew not what, till they reached the vicarage gate. There stood Mrs. Thornburg, the light drizzle into which the rain had declined, beating unheeded on her curls and ample shoulders. She stared at Robert's drenched condition, but he gave her no time to make remarks. "'Don't take it off,' he said with a laughing wave of the hand to Catherine. "'I will come for it to-morrow morning.' And he ran up the drive, conscious at last that it might be prudent to get himself into something less sponge-like than his present attire as quickly as possible. The vicar followed him. "'Don't keep Catherine, my dear. There's nothing to tell. Nobody's the worse.' Mrs. Thornburg took no heed. Opening the iron gate, she went through it on to the deserted, rain-beaten road, laid both her hands on Catherine's shoulders, and looked her straight in the eyes. The vicar's anxious hint was useless. She could contain herself no longer. She had watched them from the vicarage come down the fell together, and seen them cross the stepping-stones, lingeringly, hand in hand. "'My dear Catherine,' she cried, effusively kissing Catherine's glowing cheek under the shelter of the Laurestinus that made a bower of the gate. "'My dear Catherine!' Catherine gazed at her in astonishment. Mrs. Thornburg's eyes were all alive and swarming with questions. If it had been Rose, she would have let them out in one fell flight. But Catherine's personality kept her in awe. And after a second, as the two stood together, a deep flush rose on Catherine's face, and an expression of half-frightened apology dawned in Mrs. Thornburg's. Catherine drew herself away. "'Will you please give Mr. Ellesmere his Mackintosh?' she said, taking it off. "'I shan't want it this little way.' And putting on Mrs. Thornburg's arm, she turned away, walking quickly round the bend of the road. Mrs. Thornburg watched her open-mouthed, and moved slowly back to the house in a state of complete collapse. "'I always knew,' she said with a groan, I always knew it would never go right if it was Catherine. Why was it Catherine? And she went in, still hurling at Providence the same vindictive query. Meanwhile, Catherine, hurrying home, the receding flush leaving a sudden pallor behind it, was twisting her hands before her in a kind of agony. What have I been doing? she said to herself. What have I been doing? At the gate of Burwood something made her look up. She saw the girls in their own room. Agnes was standing behind. Rose had evidently rushed forward to see Catherine come in, and now retreated as suddenly when she saw her sister look up. Catherine understood it all in an instant. They too are on the watch, she thought to herself bitterly. The strong, reticent nature was outraged by the perception that she had been for days the unconscious actor in a drama of which her sisters and Mrs. Thornburg had been the silent and intelligent spectators. She came down presently from her room, very white and quiet, 
admitted that she was tired, and said nothing to anybody. Agnes and Rose noticed the change at once, whispered to each other when they found an opportunity, and foreboded ill. After their tea-supper, Catherine, unperceived, slipped out of the little lane-gate, and climbed the stony path above the house leading on to the fell. The rain had ceased, but the clouds hung low and threatening, and the close air was saturated with moisture. As she gained the bare fell, sounds of water met her on all sides. The river cried hoarsely to her from below, the becks and the little gills were full and thunderous, and beside her over the smooth grass slid many a new-born rivulet, the child of the storm, and destined to vanish with the night. Catherine's soul went out to welcome the grey damp of the hills. She knew them best in this mood. They were thus most her own. She climbed on, till at last she reached the crest of the ridge. Behind her lay the valley, and on its further side the fells she had crossed in the afternoon. Before her spread a long green veil, compared to which Windale, with its white road, its church and parsonage and scattered houses, was the great world itself. Marysdale had no road, and not a single house. As Catherine descended into it she saw not a sign of human life. There were sheep grazing in the silence of the long June twilight. The blackish walls ran down and up again, dividing the green hollow with melancholy uniformity. Here and there was a sheepfold, suggesting the bleakness of winter nights, and here and there a rough stone barn for storing fodder. And beyond the vale, eastwards and northwards, Catherine looked out upon a wild sea of moors wrapped in mists, sullen and storm-beaten, while to the left the clouds hung deepest and inkiest over the high points of the Alswater Mountains. When she was once below the pass, man and his world were shut out. The girl figure in the blue cloak and hood was absolutely alone. She descended till she reached a point where a little stream had been turned into a stone trough for cattle. Above it stood a gnarled and solitary thorn. Catherine sank down on a rock at the foot of the tree. It was a seat she knew well. She had lingered there with her father. She had thought and prayed there as girl and woman. She had wrestled there, often with despondency or grief, or some of those subtle spiritual temptations which were all her pure youth had known. Till the inner light had dawned again, and the humble, enraptured soul could almost have traced amid the shadows of that dappled modern world, between her and the clouds, the white stoles and sleeping wings of ministering spirits. But no wrestle had ever been so hard as this. And with what fierce suddenness had it come upon her! She looked back over the day with bewilderment. She could see dimly that the Catherine who had started on that Shamore walk had been full of vague misgivings other than those concerned with a few neglected duties. There had been an undefined sense of unrest, of difference, of broken equilibrium. She had shown it in the way in which at first she had tried to keep herself and Robert Ellesmere apart. And then, beyond the departure from Shamore, she seemed to lose the thread of her own history. Memory was drowned in a feeling to which the resisting soul as yet would give no name. She laid her head on her knees, trembling. She heard again the sweet imperious tones with which she broke down her opposition about the cloak. She felt again the grasp of his steadying hand on hers. But it was only for a very few minutes that she drifted thus. She raised her head again, scourging herself in shame and self-reproach, recapturing the empire of the soul with a strong effort. She set herself to a stern analysis of the whole situation. Clearly, Mrs. Thornburg and her sisters had been aware for some indefinite time 
that Mr. Ellesmere had been showing a peculiar interest in her. Their eyes had been open. How many meetings and tete-a-tetes had been managed for her and Ellesmere, and how complacently she had fallen into Mrs. Thornburg's snares. "'Have I encouraged him?' she asked herself sternly. "'Yes,' cried the smarting conscience. "'Can I marry him?' "'No,' said conscience again. "'Not without deserting your post, not without betraying your trust.' "'What post? What trust?' Ah, conscience was ready enough with the answer. Was it not just ten years since, as a girl of sixteen, prematurely old and thoughtful, she had sat beside her father's deathbed, while her delicate, hysterical mother, in a state of utter collapse, was kept away from him by the doctors? She could see the drawn face, the restless, melancholy eyes. "'Catherine, my darling, you are the strong one. They will look to you. Support them.' and she could see in imagination her own young face pressed against the pillows. "'Yes, father, always, always.' "'Catherine, life is harder, the narrower way, narrower than ever. I die.' A memory caught still the piteous, long-drawn breath by which the voice was broken. "'In much, much perplexity about many things, you have a clear soul, an iron will. Strengthen the others. Bring them safe to the day of account.' "'Yes, father, with God's help. Oh, with God's help!' That long-past dialogue is clear and sharp to her now, as though it was spoken afresh in her ears. And how has she kept her pledge? She looks back humbly on her life of incessant devotion, on the tie of long dependence which was bound to her, a weak and widowed mother, on her relations to her sisters, the efforts she has made to train them in the spirit of her father's life and beliefs. Have those efforts reached their term? Can it be said in any sense that her work is done, her promise kept? Oh, no, no, she cries to herself with vehemence. Her mother depends on her every day and hour for protection, comfort, enjoyment. The girls are at the opening of life, Agnes twenty, Rose eighteen, with all experience to come. And Rose! Ah, at the thought of Rose, Catherine's heart sinks deeper and deeper. She feels a culprit before her father's memory. What is it that has gone so desperately wrong with her training of the child? Surely she is given love enough, anxious thought enough, and here is Rose only fighting to be free from the yoke of her father's wishes, from the galling pressure of the family tradition. No. Her task has just now reached its most difficult, its most critical moment. How can she leave it? Impossible. What claim can she put against these supreme claims of her promise, her mother's and sister's need? His claim? Oh, no, no! She admits with soreness and humiliation unspeakable that she has done him wrong. If he loves her, she has opened the way thereto. She confesses in her scrupulous honesty that when the inevitable withdrawal comes, she will have given him cause to think of her hardly, slightingly. She flinches painfully under the thought. But it does not alter the matter. This girl, brought up in the austerest school of Christian self-government, knows nothing of the divine rights of passion. Half-modern literature is based upon them. Catherine Labour knew of no supreme right but the right of God to the obedience of man. Oh, and besides, besides, it is impossible that she should care so very much. The time is so short. There is so little in her, comparatively, to attract a man of such resource, such attainment, such access to the best things of life. 
She cannot, in a kind of terror, she will not believe in her own love-worthiness, in her own power to deal a lasting wound. Then her own claim. Has she any claim? Has the poor, bounding heart that she cannot silence, do what she will, through all this strenuous debate, no claim to satisfaction, to joy? She locks her hands round her knees, conscious, poor soul, that the worst struggle is here, the quickest agony here. But she does not waver for an instant, and her weapons are all ready. The inmost soul of her is a fortress well stored, whence at any moment the mere personal craving of the natural man can be met, repulsed, slain. Man approaches so much the nearer unto God, the farther he departeth from all earthly comfort. If thou couldst perfectly annihilate thyself, and empty thyself of all created love, then should I be constrained to flow into thee with greater abundance of grace. When thou lookest unto the creature, the sight of the Creator is withdrawn from thee. Learn in all things to overcome thyself for the love of thy Creator. She presses the sentence she so often meditated in her long solitary walks about the mountains into her heart. And one fragment of George Herbert especially rings in her ears, solemnly, funereally. Thy Saviour sentenced joy. Ay, sentence it for ever, the personal craving, the selfish need that must be filled at any cost. In the silence of the descending night, Catherine quietly, with tears, carried out that sentence, and slew her young newborn joy at the feet of the Master. She stayed where she was for a while after this crisis, in a kind of bewilderment and stupor, but maintaining a perfect outward tranquillity. Then there was a curious little epilogue. "'It is all over,' she said to herself tenderly. "'But he has taught me so much. He has been so good to me. He is so good. Let me take to my heart some counsel, some word of his, and obey it sacredly, silently, for these days' sake.' Then she fell thinking again, and she remembered their talk about Rose. How often she had pondered it since! In this intense trance of feeling it breaks upon her finally that he is right. May it not be that he, with his clearer thought, his wider knowledge of life, has laid his finger on the weak point in her guardianship of her sisters? "'I have tried to stifle her passion,' she thought, to push it out of the way as a hindrance. Ought I not rather to have taught her to make it a step in the ladder? to have moved her to bring her gifts to the altar? Oh, let me take his word for it, be ruled by him in this one thing, once!" She bowed her face on her knees again. It seemed to her that she had thrown herself at Ellesmere's feet, that her cheek was pressed against that young brown hand of his. How long the moment lasted she never knew. When at last she rose stiff and weary, darkness was overtaking even the lingering northern twilight. The angry clouds had dropped lower on the moors, a few sheep beside the glimmering stone trough showed dimly white. The night wind was sighing through the untenanted valley and the scanty branches of the thorn. White mists lay along the hollow of the dale, they moved weirdly under the breeze. She could have fancied them a troop of wraiths to whom she had flung her warm, crushed heart, and who were bearing it away to burial. As she came slowly over the pass and down the windale side of the fell, a clear purpose was in her mind. Agnes had talked to her only that morning of Rose and Rose's desire, and she had received the news with her habitual silence. The house was lit up when she returned. Her mother had gone upstairs. 
Catherine went to her, but even Mrs. Labour discovered that she looked worn out, and she was sent off to bed. She went along the passage quickly to Rose's room, listening a moment at the door. Yes, Rose was inside, crooning some German song, and apparently alone. She knocked and went in. Rose was sitting on the edge of her bed, a white dressing-gown over her shoulders, her hair in a glorious confusion all about her. She was swaying backwards and forwards, dreamily singing, and she started up when she saw Catherine. "'Roshan,' said the elder sister, going up to her with a tremor of heart, and putting her motherly arms round the curly golden hair and the half-covered shoulders. "'You never told me of that letter from Manchester, but Agnes did. Did you think, Roshan, I would never let you have your way?' "'Oh, I am not so hard. I may have been wrong. I think I have been wrong. You shall do what you will, Roshan. If you want to go, I will ask Mother.' Rose, pushing herself away with one hand, stood staring. She was struck dumb by the sudden breaking down of Catherine's long resistance. And what a strange, white Catherine! What did it mean? Catherine withdrew her arms with a little sigh and moved away. "'I just came to tell you that, Roshan,' she said. I'm very tired and must not stay. Catherine, very tired? Rose thought the skies must be falling. Cathy, she cried, leaping forward just as her sister gained the door. Oh, Cathy, you are an angel, and I am a nasty, odious little wretch. But don't tell me, what is the matter? And she flung her strong young arms round Catherine with a passionate strength. The older sister struggled to release herself. Let me go, Rose, she said in a low voice. Oh, you must let me go!" And wrenching herself free, she drew her hand over her eyes, as though trying to drive away the mist from them. "'Good night. Sleep well.' And she disappeared, shutting the door noiselessly after her. Rose stood staring a moment, and then swept off her feet by a flood of many feelings—remorse, love, fear, sympathy—threw herself downwards on her bed and burst into a passion of tears. End of Book One, Chapter Seven